You are listening to the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund podcast. The CBLDF podcast is part of our ongoing education program. My name is Alex Cox, and I am the host and producer of this episode. My guest today is R. Sikoriak, who is one of my favorite cartoonists and one of my favorite people, to be honest. This year, he published a book through Drawn and Quarterly called The Unquotable Trump, which takes quotes from Donald Trump and recontextualizes them in the form of comic cover pastiches. We go into that book uh, quite a bit. We also talk a little bit about his previous work and uh, his methods of working. Mr. Skoriak let us use a strip called Bartlebert, which mixed Bartleby the Scrivener and Dilbert in one of our uh, previous Liberty Annuals. If you have a chance to check that out, it is a uh, very funny strip, and I'm really pleased he let us use it. I also recommend his other books, which he'll mention, Masterpiece Comics, Terms and Conditions, uh, and any anywhere you can find his work. He's a very thoughtful and a very talented cartoonist, and it was a joy and a pleasure to sit down and talk to him for 45 minutes. With that said, enjoy the interview. My name is R. Sikoriak, and I am the cartoonist behind Masterpiece Comics, Terms and Conditions, and The Unquotable Trump. Cool. Uh, thanks, thanks for doing the podcast. Um, before we get started on the current work, which which is uh, what what you're here to talk about, do you want to walk us through a little bit of your history? Just uh, sure. maybe roll back to art school or, or even before that. Okay, I was wondering how far back you wanted me to as, go. As far back uh, as you think is relevant. How's that? <laughs> All right. Well, I I've been drawing comics my whole life, um, and. Um, it's really it's kind of hard to it's kind of hard for me to summarize my career because so much of it has been freelance work and um, what I've become uh, spe- especially known for are parodies. So um, I've done a lot of different work for a lot of different places that you that many people might not have put together was all my work, <laughs> um, but. Um, I uh, I graduated from art school. I was very lucky uh, after school to work with Art Spiegelman and Francoise Mouly at Raw Magazine. And uh, I had a couple of short pieces published by them in the uh, late 80s, early 90s. Um, and they were a huge influence on me in so many ways. Um, and um, even at that point, I was sort of really focusing on pastiche, parody, uh, postmodern comics, I guess you'd say. And um, uh, slowly I built up a body of work, which was published in Masterpiece Comics, which uh, is a collection of of literary classics drawn in the style of different comic strips um, and comic books, uh, such as... Uh, Batman, uh, a Batman pastiche that's a faithful retelling of Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment. So that kind of thing, where I'm um, taking two different elements and putting them together. And I've been doing that for many years. And then, um, as I said, I freelanced for different magazines, did work for The New Yorker, worked for a long time at Nickelodeon Magazine, um, and then contributed parodies to places like The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, The Onion, 
and then more traditional comics outlets like Mad Magazine, etc. And um, in the last couple of years, uh, I was trying to sort of uh, mess with my working methods and I decided to adapt the entirety of the iTunes terms and conditions into a 100-page graphic novel. Uh, and each page is a different style and references a, a specific artist and comic book or, or comic strip. And um, that's maybe more conceptual than we need to go to right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, and those were done as the, – that was a series of mini comics first or – Yes. The, okay. the The Terms and Conditions book started out as two mini comics. Um, and it was me sort of trying to grapple with the way that comics had changed over the course of 30 years of my career, uh, my professional career, and um, trying to sort of kind of catch up with a lot of styles that I hadn't had a chance to parody yet. And in a way, I guess, make fun of the whole idea of graphic novels, which I think are great, but it's a funny marketing uh <laughs> term and uh i and i wanted to sort of play with uh play with a lot of elements um what was the what were the raw strips well let's see the first raw strip was um a retelling of dante's inferno in the style of bazooka joe bubblegum rappers which sadly don't exist anymore but i think people remember them they were little four-panel comics that your bazooka gum would be wrapped in. So they'd be printed on waxy paper, not great printing, very dumb gags, um, sort of like a little treat after you're trying to chew the gum that you just bought. And um, so anyway, uh, I, I retold the the nine circles of hell um, in the style of Bazooka Joe comics. So each each circle got its own four-panel strip with fortunes and prizes, which were also part of the original uh, cartoons. So I, even at that point, I was really interested in sort of playing with um, with form. And uh, I, I've been starting to call the way I work sort of building crossword puzzles because you're sort of, sort of taking all these elements and trying to fit them all together on a page um, and sort of working with the constraints of the different comics that you're adapting or I'm adapting. And, um, and yeah, that, that strip sort of set me off on my path. And was that the first time you had kind of played with, with mixing genres and styles and, and, and putting, you know, one piece of literature mixed with another form, or is that something that you'd been playing with for a while? I've been playing with it to one degree or another. I was, when I was in, when I was in art school, I was very restless and, and didn't really like the idea of having one particular style. So I like jumping around from 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 um, from style to style, just on a visual level. Um, when I was a kid, I would do parodies with my brothers of, of superhero comics and things like that. So I was certainly thinking about Mad from a very young age, uh, and that sort of that sort of strain in comics. Um, I think the thing, one of the things that was a precedent for the Bazooka Joe uh, comic, which was called Inferno Joe, one of the one of the precursors for that was a strip I did in a class where I um, retold anecdotes by the composer John Cage in the style of different comic strips, and that kind of helped me put all the pieces together. Where I realized I liked working with 
with um, found texts, and I like working with um, with pre-existing uh, comic sources. So that was kind of the first one that got me there. Is this too complicated? This seems like awfully technical. <laughs> no, no, it's good. I, I like technical. Okay. The one th- anecdote I remember years ago talking to you about, you were just saying that you didn't have, uh, that you were interested in, in other styles and not really having your own. And I asked, I said, I don't know that I've ever seen you draw something that's not riffing on another cartoonist. And I said, I, would I even recognize your your drawing style? And you said, you'd probably be disappointed if you did, which I thought was very funny and self-effacing. But <laughs> do you, I mean, when you sit down with a sketchbook and just doodle, do you, is there a style that you feel is kind of recognizably your own? I, you know, I think, I think you'd recognize like mark making that I, that I do. I'm not trying to be mysterious here. I just, I never <laughs> like, I never consciously, I never consciously developed a style. Right. So there's a great quote. I think it's from Picasso where he says, the way you draw a circle is your style. Mm-hmm. So if you, if you boil it down to something as simple, as simple as that, then if you looked at, if you looked at my sketches or doodles, even preliminary drawings for comic strips, you'd probably see sort of a consistency in the in the mark making, in some of the line work. Um, you know, I I I I, w- I tried to be very um, um, I tried to be very uh, broad in my in my uh, studies when I was in art school. But you know, a lot of my drawing comes down to what I was doing when I was twelve. <laughs> so I feel right. like. I, I, I probably got bad habits of drawing that I've maintained from then, um, you know, that show up when you're not consciously thinking about what you're doing, but you're just sort of making marks. You probably use some of the same techniques that you use the entire time you've been drawing with your hand. So, um, you know, so I, I feel like I see sort of a clumsiness in my, in my sketches uh, that I never really enjoyed. It's sort of the way, sometimes people will say, Oh, I hate the sound of my own voice. You know, like, you know, when they hear themselves uh, recording, uh, recorded on a podcast, for instance, uh, they might say, Oh, I I just can't, I can't listen to myself. Um, and I think, (laughs) I think there's something to that when I look at my own drawings. Um, I'm more comfortable with it now, but I think when I was starting out, I was very, I was hyper self-conscious about it. Right. Um, you know, a lot of that falls away, but what hasn't fallen away is my desire to make stuff that looks like other people through it because it's, it's interesting for me to sort of get into their heads. I think it's more surprising for me to see work that comes out that way. Um, you know, and I just, like I said, I, people spend years kind of like evolving in the way that they draw. And I never really had that kind of evolution because I'd always been jumping around from, from style to style. So, um, so that's what I mean by disappointment. <laughs> sure. Um, the, something that I think is is interesting and, and thoughtful about your work is it's not just that you're drawing in the style. If, if you want to go back to Inferno Joe, the, the way that you're telling a story is often across a very confined uh, and restricted storytelling format. So you're telling, you know, Dante's Inferno across a several you know, was it four panels, three panel strips? Three or four, yeah. Yeah. Suddenly you're really playing with, like, the pacing and the form of the literature, and you're 
bending it to your will in a way. Like I, I, I find that part of it fascinating, and that ties into the the latest book where you're telling the story just through covers, and you're giving context to the quotes just by using what's essentially like a splash page or a single image. And I'm just wondering how much planning, how much development has to go into that, because I'm guessing that often that's even harder than just laying out a story. Well, you know, it goes it goes back and forth, I would say. I think that, I mean, they all have, everything has its own challenges. I find it kind of liberating to not have to solve many of the problems that come when someone sits a blank sheet of paper and says, okay, how am I going to tell this great story I have? Um, you know, I think all of my, all, a lot of my enjoyment of comics comes from figuring out the way they're constructed. So I love having the structures already in place that I'm, that I'm using to, to retell the stories. So even in the case of the Batman crime and punishment story, um, it's important to say that I was looking at 1955 Batman comics, mm-hmm. which be about 10 pages long, which tended to have about six or seven panels per page. So like there was even a structure there that I was really relying on before I drew that strip. I actually thought maybe I should draw it like Neil Adams, which is kind of insane. I don't <laughs> know if I could even have done that, but as a concept that kind of like hyper, dramatic or melodramatic style of his uh, is kind of fascinating, but his storytelling is completely different. So if I had started looking at different Batman comics, it would have, it could have turned out entirely different, would have been paced differently, probably would have been a lot longer. Uh, So, you know, uh, every time, every strip is, is, is is highly considered that way in terms of the, the Trump book where it's all covers um, in some ways, that's easier. Co- covers seem to give you the freedom to show the most dramatic, the most graphically exciting uh, moment of the story. So, so just limiting to that was, was um, in some ways a relief that the Trump book came together really quickly. Um, I, I, I had the idea right before the election. And then I was like, I don't want to think about him anymore. And then when he won, I was like, all right, I'm going to just start cranking this out. Um, I just kind of wanted to say something. So it, it, it came together really quickly. And again, having the having the constraint of the covers simplified it in a way that even the Terms and Conditions book uh, didn't have that. So um, I think constraints really help you um, <laughs> meet deadlines and also, um, um, you know, think differently about the work. Yeah, I mean, what you're calling constraints, though, could also be, it's a cover. It could be anything in the universe. You know what I mean? So, like, where you have, might have certain constraints with a Bazooka Joe strip where you have to get it in kind of four simplified panels, you, you kind of have the entire history of superhero comics to play with with the unquotable Trump stuff. And I think that's, to me, that's even more bonkers that you could boil some of those down to specific images does that make any sense? The single panels to me seem even crazier because you, you don't necessarily have the framework. Well, I suppose, um, I love that. I love how confounded you sound by it. That makes me happy. Um, but, but honestly, I I think from your point of view, you see it as like, you know, kind of as, as something that's giving you like a box to put it in. And to me, it's like, but there's a million boxes to choose from. Right, right. Well, if you think about, if you, I, I see what you mean, but 
if you think about how the the Trump book is constructed is I didn't I didn't explain this before, but essentially each page features one of the outlandish, insane, horrifying, dumb things that Trump said during the campaign or since he became president. So I saw actually seeking out the quotes was the hardest part, but certainly there were probably there's probably 25 in this book of 48 pages that you would assume would be in the book. Um, but once I had the quotes, it was much easier to sort of like home in on what I wanted to do. So, so for instance, one of the first ones I did was, um, the quote where he says, he's talking about John McCain and he says, he's not a war hero. He's a war hero because he was captured. I like people that weren't captured. So I knew I wanted to use that quote. So once you have that quote, the idea I'd already sort of established in my head, the idea of the book would be different comic book covers, not just superheroes, but different comic book covers that existed and I would insert Trump into them. So um, like terms and conditions, this, these are based on specific covers. So with a quote about a war hero, I thought, okay, that's Captain America. <laughs> like he's, he's our greatest fictional war hero. <laughs> so then I started sifting through all the Captain America covers where he's captured uh, or he's in peril. Um, and then I got, you know, I got, a, I got down to about 10 of them. Um, and then I settled on one that was drawn by Jack Kirby in the seventies. Um, I, I love, you know, a, a lot of the, a lot of the choices in this book were made on, uh, based on covers that I just liked the drawing style of. Um, but this was a good one. It, 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 it let me replace the red skull with Trump. So Trump is drawn as himself, but he's in, if you know the original cover, you may remember that it was actually originally the red skull. I liked that, uh, connection. Um, and the thing about doing it this way is you bring your associations of the comic book character and you bring your associations of Trump to these. So the reader is doing a lot of the work in terms of like remembering the context, uh, maybe maybe recognizing the situation that the hero was in peril in in the original cover. So, um, you know, these are snapshots of of his uh, trajectory from um, campaigner to, to president. Um, and you know that story. So um, you can kind of flesh it out. You can, unfortunately, you can even hear his voice in your head, which is unnerving. Um, but anyway, um, you know, you, you have, you know who this person is. Um, so that, that does a lot of the work for you. Uh, or you do a lot of the work for me as the creator <laughs> by bringing that to it. And I also organize the book in terms of, uh, or rather in, uh, in cr chronology as to when he said things. So it runs from him being the campaigner to the nominee to the debater to the president-elect to the being the president. Um, and that also gives it a sense of a story um, beyond, you know, just each cover being its own its own image. So this is what I was getting at. There's a lot more work going into these than – so this is the, the process of the storytelling that I was talking about before where you're taking something huge and breaking it into – into images in a way that I think is incredibly sophisticated. And I think that the, the amount of prep work is what it, you know, like you said, going through all of those covers and finding the one that makes sense. Um, right. That's, that's the storytelling aspect that I'm, that I'm super interested in and impressed by that you're, you're taking this concept and bending it to your will using comics in a lot of ways. Uh, 
kind of in the same way you would with the Inferno using Bazooka Joe strips. You're um, you're taking a bigger concept and, and reformatting it in a way that is very daunting to me. I'm not. I guess it's kind of second nature at this point. But at, at any point, did you? I mean, does this just how your brain works at this point, where you just can hear these quotes and you immediately start putting them into context of, of comics and, and how that's going to work or however you might paste them together? Well, originally I, I did the Trump, uh, the Trump project as a black and white zine, like an, you know, like a mini comic essentially. Sure. Um, I just sort of wanted to get something out. I kind of wanted to just say, I object. I did 16 pages in a cover and I was like, here, I'm angry. <laughs> this is this is what I'm upset about. Um, but then Drawn and Quarterly saw it, and they were like, "Let's make it a book." And I had not considered that. Um, the 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 mini comic was just random pages um, put together. It was all from the campaign because I I literally did it in November and December of last year. Um, but when they were like, "Let's make a book," then I was like, "Okay, well now how do I structure the rest of it?" I love structure. I love sort of figuring out how to put the pieces together. So um, so that part, I guess, is second nature. But in terms of the way this book came together, it came together super fast and it came together um, without much forethought. <laughs> so, uh, you but, know, I, I think it I think it works. But and I, I, and I but I like that. I think I'm a good editor. So maybe my editing skills um, are a big part of what makes my projects work. Yeah, I mean, I hope I'm not rambling here. I'm, I'm trying to, to... To me, the Trump book, in a lot of ways, while it might just, at a glance, seem like, you know, riffs on covers, I think it's a lot more sophisticated than that. Like you were saying, it tells the story from campaign to presidency, and there's kind of an, a weird escalation in it, and the way the covers are sequenced makes sense to me. Um, that might just be because I'm such a comic nerd. I'm reading a lot into like the, the context of what the covers mean mm-hmm. historically. Mm-hmm. But to me, this is like going back to some of the stuff in masterpiece comics where you're, you're rebuilding the narrative into a, a format that, that has more context to it historically. Well, that's, that's what I'm interested in. I mean, I, uh, I teach at, at Parsons, I teach in the illustration department and I'm constantly trying to encourage the students to sort of think kind of globally about their projects, like try to figure out how the, how all the pieces come together. So I think my brain just sort of goes into, into forms of organization. Right. <laughs> I just, I need to put things in context. I'm, I'm, I'm really glad it came together, um, for you as a reader Um, and, uh, certainly when I was working on it, I tried once I, once I, uh, you you know, was 30 pages into it and I I had to do 48 pages for the book. Um, then I was like, what have I missed? What, what parts of the story haven't I covered? What, what did he say about healthcare? What did he say about this? And I feel like the weakest pages are maybe the ones where I felt like I needed to cover a topic, but didn't necessarily have the greatest quote. But I think in the, in the scope of the book, I think I did a, I think I did a good job of covering, um, a lot of his opinions, his, 
his crazy statements, you know, his 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 views views is maybe a strange word to use with him, but his views on a number of issues. So I tried to I tried to sort of cover the cover the con the entire context of the election. Uh, maybe I should have called it what happened, but uh, <laughs> it didn't occur to me. Um, in any case, um, you know, I. I love looking at old comics. <laughs> so that's the other part of this equation. It's like if I can if I can work on my project and procrastinate by looking at looking through old comic books, like that's kind of the best <laughs> the best thing. Um so uh you know, it it it's it, it's there's a lot of thinking that does go into all my work and luckily I can do that in the middle of the night when I'm when I'm not able to sleep. <laughs> um I, to get away from kind of the formal aspects of uh, of it the the political aspects have you gotten any blowback what what has the reaction generally been the reaction has mostly been great um you know I, a few people on the left felt that i was sort of just exploiting a terrible situation which i don't think i'm doing but i understand why people feel that way um i you know i had done the mini comic and i i really I really don't think he's a good person. So um, it's very upsetting even for me to, uh, you know, think about how this would be received because if you have a visceral reaction against him, this is not a fun, you know, you know, holiday gift or something. It's like, actually, I kind of meant it as an angry, an angry screed, but it's still him on every page. Uh, so, you know, I feel like some people have, have have really been kind of appalled by it, even though they might agree with me politically. Um, uh, in general, I've gotten a lot of people who who are drawn to the cover and and look through the book at at at, at book festivals and comic cons, and they're laughing at it. And I'm really grateful to see that that the humor comes through. Um, and um, I, the funniest thing that happened to me was I was in Forbidden Planet when the when the mini comic had already come out and it was on a shelf and I was I was down the aisle the person the people in the row did not know I was there there was this little kid he was really hyperactive and he was laughing 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 so hard at it and his and his mom said you were not getting anything with his name on it now or ever and I thought I know how you feel. <laughs> totally reasonable response. <laughs> um, so, on the other side, I've gotten some people trolling me on Facebook and Twitter, but not too much. Um, you know, I I don't tend to engage in political commentary online, but I am putting these I am putting these images out, and they are provocative. So, some people have found me, but uh, but uh, I did get a one star review on Amazon, which which amused me because it, it was something like a uh, cheap shot for libs only. And I thought, yeah, that's actually accurate. Yeah, sure. I, I, <laughs> I don't, I don't disagree with that. I was like, that's, <laughs> yeah, I think it's definitely a cheap shot. <laughs> I'm not, I don't, and it probably is for libs. So, okay. <laughs> I feel like if anybody has the temperament to be trolled, you're probably the one. Cause I don't see you getting too upset by much of any of this. Oh, I take things really seriously, uh, which is why I'm upset about this president. Well, sure, but, but nobody has been um, nobody's been super mean. I, I've gotten a couple of comments. You, you know, you have a pretty even keel in general. 
Uh, I guess more, 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 um, <laughs> more publicly, I suppose. Well, sure. <laughs> <laughs> the good or bad thing about this book is if you just see the cover, you might not know where it's coming from. And maybe that's why the person on Amazon was so upset because <laughs> maybe they thought the cover was like a positive statement. <laughs> well, the other aspect is there's not too much editorialization, you know, I mean like the, the characters you've replaced him with or the, or the covers you, you've put him on to a certain degree, but for the most part, you're just using his quotes and you're not, this is just, these are things he's actually said. Yes, that's true. But I've made him. I've 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 put him in the place of every villain on every cover. So well, that's it's not. As if, you know, I mean, because I've seen. You've, I I I have, and I'm sure you have seen caricatures of him as Superman. So you know, it's not. You know, I could have. Someone could have made the same book with the same quotes and flipped flipped all of the perspectives on it. So um, I mean, I I don't like to editorialize in my work. Um, I do editorialize when I'm doing stuff for Mad or The Daily Show <laughs> because that's their that's their job. Um, but um, but in my own work, I try to sort of lay it out there and let the reader put it together. Um, so I that, for me that's important. Um, you know, I, I'd rather listen to what someone else has to say than what I have to say. Um, and it's kind of in, disingenuous because here I am talking on your podcast, but still. One of the things that we have been doing this year, and, and we talked about this in San Diego a little bit, is the ongoing uh, public presentation about the history of activism in comics. Uh -huh. um, we start with Windsor McKay, and we start with uh, Nell Brinkley, and you know we talk about Mad getting political, and we talk about underground comics and women's comics. And, and one of the last couple of slides that we have in the presentation is, is Resist and your book. Um... I'm not sure how activist you consider it, um, but I'd like to talk about that a little bit because, you know, I, I, I as a d doing that program, I've placed it in the context of activism, and I wonder where where you position it in those terms. Um, well, I, you, when I made the mini comic, I thought, oh, I can donate the profits to some great organization. And then I thought, I don't really make much money from the mini comics already. I, and I was like accounting, doing the accounting for the mini comics seemed kind of really difficult to me. Cause you know, I give out a lot of copies, you know, I sell them, you know, cheap to comic shops, you know, sometimes I'll sell them full price at a, at a, um, at a convention or something. But I was like, I don't even know how to do the accounting of that. So I actually put an ad on the back of the mini comic, a fake ad, um, and he can't really say the word fake anymore. A pastiche ad on the back cover, which is a Hostess Twinkie parody of a uh, super sad uh, fighting Donald Trump, and they distract him by giving him a giving him Twitter. So instead of a Twinkie, he gets Twitter. Um, anyway, it's it's based on an on an old Kurt Swan uh, ad, and it says in there that while he's distracted, we should be donating to these organizations. So I rattle off a bunch of organizations. Um, so, uh, you know, that, that was, that was part of my impulse. And then when, and then when Peggy Burns at, at Drawn and Quarterly asked me about doing the book, she said, we can, we can donate some of the profits to the ACLU. And I said, that's great. Like, I really, I think we both felt like, 
this was a timely book. It, you know, I felt like it added something to the conversation, but I was also extra happy that we could uh, give some money to the ACLU. So I, um, I, I don't, I don't always, I'm not always very vocal about my activism, but it is important to me and I'm glad that we could do something in, in, in the case of the book. Um, part of the thread in, in my presentation is kind of satirical work. Like we have Pogo and we have mad and national lampoon. Um, and, and you've mentioned mad as a, as a client, but also something that you've enjoyed it is, do you feel like this fits into that context to a degree or? Well, the thing about mad is it is just such a seminal influence on me. I grew up reading the magazine as it was coming out. And we also, this was in like the late sixties, early seventies. My brothers and I would also like collect the paperbacks that reprinted a lot of the old Harvey Kurtzman stuff. So that kind of that sensibility was just always part of what I was doing. And as I was saying, my brothers and I would actually do like parodies of Marvel comics. So like we were just kind of thinking about parody all the time. Um, what I always felt separated my work from what Mad does specifically is the the degree of editorializing. Editorializing. Um, so Mad would always say, "While you're reading the story, this is a dumb story," right? <laughs> or which you know is is a great is a great way to wake people up. But um, I didn't want to. I didn't want to insert commentary on my own work the way that they do. So I do try to sort of put the elements together and see what happens. Now, the elements I choose um, don't belong together. <laughs> you know, Batman doesn't really belong in Dostoevsky. Uh, you know, Trump doesn't really belong in a Baby Huey comic. But you put them together and you see what happens. And um, to the degree I'm making a statement at all, it's the the elements I'm putting together. But beyond that, I'm not commenting on it. I'm just sort of letting them percolate and boil over or mutate. Um, so, you know, I, I, as much as I feel an affinity with mad and I feel like they could probably run something very similar to what I did with, you know, with the, within the frame of mad, you know, they would probably have to write an introduction sort of giving a lot of more context, uh, than I might. But, um, you know, I, I feel like it's related, but it's, it's, it's its own thing. I feel like it, it, it leans a little more towards Lampoon because a lot of the anti-war stuff or the anti-racism stuff they were doing, like, right. um, and that would, and there was a immediacy to the social commentary of those strips that I feel like your book kind of captures. Like it, it's almost at a certain point, it almost stops being funny. And I don't mean that in a critical way, but, um, I'm glad to hear that. Um, it, I, I get, I get concerned when people um, only see it as funny because that wasn't my intention. Um, and I, I, I try to sort of do that with everything I do. If, 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 if uh, someone's listening to this podcast and hasn't seen my work before, it might seem like it's very jokey and um, you kind of get it as soon as you hear the concept. But hopefully what happens when you read the, the, the comics that they get deeper and they get stranger and they get less funny is fine, <laughs> but hopefully there's some other 
hopefully it's not replaced by boredom, but hopefully it's replaced by unease or uh, discontent or <laughs> a sense of one's place in an, in a in a blind, uncaring universe. That might be too strong, but <laughs> but just a sense of of you know a, a bigger a bigger world uh, than than maybe the the old timey comic book parodies might suggest. Um, I did actually try in the book not to just use the old work, not to just use old comics. I tried to put in some contemporary references. Um, I kind of, I, I, one of the things I hoped that the book would do would not just be for people to go, oh, I love that strip, but sort of go, oh, Donald Trump has even ruined my comics. Because I feel like he's kind of infected so much of our culture right now. And um, I, I think he's, I think, I think everything feels kind of tainted. And uh, so I would hope that would come across as well. Um, I don't think the book is just a goof on Donald Trump, but it's also a suggestion that, that um, even the stuff we love can be um, corrupted. Maybe I didn't, I don't want to say complicit. The comics aren't complicit, <laughs> but corrupted. Anyway, I don't know. I hadn't, that's a good question. And I hadn't quite, answered it before so i just it, to, to me they seem activist more activist in nature because of the way by the time you're done reading the book you have thought about the things he said and this is where it reminds me of lampoon where it starts out and you you're literally laughing out loud looking at these juxtapositions and then by the end it's almost like Ugh, my stomach kind of hurts now and it being recontextualized like this hammers that home to me uh, yeah your mileage may vary but i mean that's great i i i appreciate that i mean that's that's what i would hope for i i i there's a there's a little there's a little gag in the in the beginning of masterpiece comics uh and i'm gonna try to i'm gonna get a copy so i can read it to you but there's a little gag on the in the on the contents page um and it says um it's a parody of an X-ray specs ad, and it says X-ray picks an amazing literary discovery. A scholarly optical principle really works. Imagine holding a comic book in front of you. Reading closely allows you to see beneath the juvenile four-color images to a world of deep emotional resonance and significant artistic merit. Look at all the friendly characters. Aren't they somehow tragic now? Loads of laughs and fun at cocktail parties. <laughs> so... Um, that's not as well written as I remembered, but but the point, <laughs> the point is that, um, and it's specifically written in the style of an X-ray specs ad, so it's intentionally grammatically clunky. Um, so apologies, but the point was that I I I always want people to look harder at comics, <laughs> whether they look like the junk stuff they read when they were a kid, or they look or it looks like the stuff that we take more seriously now. But anyway, the point is 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 just that. Yeah, there's levels to the to these things, and and um, uh, you know, I'm 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 glad that I'm glad they come through. Um, I'm sure if you flip through the book quicker, you might not you might not think about it that way. But 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 that's great. Yeah, I think that's. Uh, I don't know. Is there anything else to add? I... Yeah, I can't think of anything else. This were this was this was good. Excellent. Awesome. Thank you, Bob. Sure, you're welcome. It was good chatting with you. Yeah, you too, Alex. Thank you. The Comic Book Legal Defense Fund is a 501c3 nonprofit, 
and we depend on donations like yours to continue the work that we do. You can donate by visiting cbldf.org and clicking the Donate banner. This podcast in particular and all of our education programs are made possible by a donation from the Gaiman Foundation and, again, from the financial support of listeners just like you. You can also support the podcast by going to iTunes and giving us a rating, which helps people find us. If you have any questions or comments about this episode, please contact us. You can uh, email us directly at info at cbldf.org. Our music is by the Django Reinhardt Orchestra, and this podcast has been produced and edited by me, Alex Cox. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back next month.